And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus once again. We'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 20 this morning. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons, Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings, and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. He was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Now at first reading, this, this text, of course, really seems complicated. Uh, we're not accustomed to reading about sacrifices and all these rituals. And even though we read about the, the uh, sin offering or the purification offering earlier and the peace offering, and we know that there were certain, certain procedures for giving those, uh, the reference to a wave offering, for instance, that probably means a symbolic lifting up of the offering uh, before the Lord, uh, sort of saying, by that motion of lifting up, this belongs to you, even though we are going to eat it as part of a uh, peace fellowship feast here. Uh, so, so there's a lot of details, and sometimes, sometimes we get lost in the details and trying to figure them all out. And, and I'd be the first to admit this is a complicated text, and there are some things that are not perfectly clear in it. But but perhaps one guideline that can help you in your study of Scripture, uh, when you find something that, that is really complicated in a, in a passage like this, is to remember, don't overlook what's obvious by getting caught up in the details. Now, details are sometimes significant in, in Scripture. I'm not saying to skim or something like that, but, but where there seems to be confusion in your thinking, 
start with at least that which is clear, that which is obvious. And sometimes it's staring us right in the face. And that's the case with this passage, I think. Because look at the very first verse. Look at the very first words. The Lord, Yahweh, that is, all capital letters there, the Lord, the covenant name of God, the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now, if we're listening carefully, that strikes us. This is the only place that I know of in Scripture. I think it's the only place where the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. We've seen him speak repeatedly to Moses, right? But this is the first time in Leviticus, and I think the only time in Scripture, where the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. Well, that's got to have some significance, doesn't it? And I think that, that if we remember the, the context here, the setting of this, we'll see that significance. Where does this come? This comes right after that, that tragedy that has marred the first worship service of the congregation of Israel. You remember that, that worship was inaugurated there back in, in chapter 9, and, and it, was, it was this awesome experience for the people, and, and God gave a sign that he was accepting their worship by the, the fire that consumed uh, the, what was left on the uh, altar there. But, but immediately in chapter 10, we read about the tragedy of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who offered what was referred to as strange fire and were killed by the same fire that had, that had been a sign of blessing before. So if we're coming to this text out of that scene, it, it would be natural to, to wonder, well, does this does this gross failure on the part of, of the priestly family, is that going to negate everything we've seen before? Uh, will these human priests be disqualified from continuing to worship? Uh, I mean, we know there, there's such a thing as corporate solidarity and... And when one sins in a family, there are often repercussions for the rest of the family. And, and we would wonder, coming to this text, has this failure obviated the promise to Aaron and his sons that they would be priests? Has this, in a sense, negated their, their ordination that we saw back in chapter 8? And just these first words, then, in this verse tell us no. They tell us no. Because God, the Lord, is speaking directly to Aaron. And he's speaking to him as priest. So here, just by virtue of the fact that he's speaking to him, the Lord is saying, you still have a place of ministry here. Your sons and you are still going to be functioning as priest to lead the worship of my people. This will be affirmed uh, later on in uh, the first verse of chapter 11, in chapter 13, 14, and 15. We're going to see the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron together. 
So it's, it's reinforced there, but especially right here, I think, this is meant to catch our attention. We're supposed to realize Aaron is still the high priest. And, and I think this is the first lesson we get out of this text. And that's a lesson of grace. Grace. The Lord is a gracious God. The Lord is a gracious God. Surely, that lesson, that teaching runs all the way through Scripture, doesn't it? I, I mean, the history of God's people really is a history of their failing over and over again, isn't it? Of their sinning over and over again. And of God continually extending to them grace. That grace that is, is based on the giving of his own son to make atonement for their sin. The Lord is a gracious God. I want you to, I want you to hear that as a message to you today. God is a God of grace. I don't know exactly where you are in your spiritual walk. Uh, but maybe you're coming out of a time where you have a sense of failure have a sense of not having measured up. You know, put yourself in the place of Aaron here and hear God saying to you, I am a gracious God and I will not reject you on the basis of, of your own human failure. This is a promise given us explicitly in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says this to the Philippian believers and it applies to every believer. He, that is God, who began a good work in you. He who extended to you grace in the first place, who opened your eyes the first time to see his truth and to affirm it, to believe it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is the day you stand before him. The day he takes you to himself or comes again. He will not let you go. He will bring to completion the work he's begun. And Paul goes on to say in the next verse, You are, again speaking to believers here and all believers, You are all partakers with me of grace. That's why it can be a promise, a guarantee, right? Because it's of grace. If it was grace... Plus what you do, it couldn't be a promise. It couldn't be a guarantee because you might not come through. But Paul's saying it's all of grace. And so I know if he's begun to work in you, he will take you all the way. The Lord's word to Aaron here in our text assures him that the Lord has not revoked his calling. And he hasn't revoked his calling on you because every believer has a calling and he will not revoke his calling on you now of course there's there's more to be seen here right there's a content to what the lord says and we notice that that content is worded in the way of commands right there's a prohibition and a couple of commands associated with it so, what's the Lord's word to Aaron? Well, the Lord's word first is a prohibition. Drink no wine or strong drink or fermented drink, literally, when you enter the meeting tent. Now, this command would logically seem to be 
so that the priests are not intoxicated when they enter the meeting tent, which, remember, is the holy place where the presence of the Lord dwells in the inner room. We noted when considering last, day's, last Sunday's text that it was implied uh, that Nadab and Abihu may have gone into the meeting tent and perhaps even into the inner room where the Ark of the Covenant was with that strange fire and incense for which they were judged. Uh, most of the priest ministry, of course, takes place outside the meeting tent in the courtyard. That, that's where the altar of sacrifice is. Uh, there, there is a priest that goes in once a day to burn incense and pray for the people in that first room in the meeting tent and to tend the, the uh, lampstand and the table of uh, the bread of the presence. Uh, but for the most part, the priests are working outside. So, so the Lord's saying, I want you to exercise special care when you go into the meeting tent, into the holy place. I don't want you having any possibility of being intoxicated. And, and he's underscoring, of course, the, the awesomeness of that experience of coming into the presence of, of God there in the, in the tabernacle and later the temple. By the time of Jesus, the privilege of going in to uh, burn incense and to attend the lampstand and the, and the table there, there were so many priests that that, that privilege had become a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you remember from the gospel story in Luke that Zechariah, the priest, is an old man before he ever, for even the first time, goes into that, that first room in the, tabard, in the temple to burn incense. So, so the fact that the Lord tells Aaron that no priest is to drink wine or fermented drink when uh, entering the sanctuary, and he says that immediately after punishing Nadab and Abihu, that could mean that they had done that, that they were intoxicated and that their intoxication had led to their sin, which essentially, you remember, was to fail to treat as holy that place. They, in effect, were treating the sanctuary of God as a, as a common area where they could do whatever they wanted. They could make up their own form of worship. So, the Lord is giving this prohibition to protect his holiness and to protect the priest from another punishment such as Nadab and Abihu uh, experience. That this, this reminds us, of course, this idea of there being holy, holy space that is protected under the threat of death. Well, that takes you right back to Mount Sinai, doesn't it? when the presence of the Lord descends on Mount Sinai and he says no one is to approach, no one is even to, to touch the mountain under threat of death. And so this command is given that, that serious emphasis with the penalty of death associated with it. Uh, further, we, you notice there in the text that this is a perpetual command, a perpetual prohibition. It shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations. This isn't a temporary thing. This is a permanent thing. So, so in a lot of ways, there's an emphasis on the seriousness of this, the importance of it. But, of course, the Lord says more than that, doesn't he? 
there's a note of explanation given in the next two verses, in verses 10 and 11. And there seems to be a connection made grammatically between verse 9 and verses 10 and 11. My translation breaks these up into separate sentences. But actually, the way they're written in the original, we, we should see some kind of a connection like, so that, or in order that, at the beginning of verse 9 and verse 10, that is tying what those verses say with this prohibition. Why should you do this? Why, do you, why are you forbidden from drinking wine or fermented drink when entering the, the meeting tent? Well, it's because you're supposed to be doing this. So I think that's the way that we read verses 9, uh, 10, and 11 then. This rule or statute is so serious and so permanent because you are, or so that you can be discerning between the holy and the unholy, the unclean and the clean, and so that you are teaching the statutes or rules spoken by the Lord. Now you can see the logical connection here. Okay, Nadab and Abihu, by their behavior, have both, have by their example, not been showing the people how to distinguish between the holy and the common. In fact, they have done just the opposite. And so, and so the Lord is reminding Aaron of the priestly calling to discern between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean, and to teach that to the congregation. Now remember, we're, we're at a time in in God's revelation of himself to human beings, where he is, he is speaking to them in terms of a covenant. He's made a covenant with Israel, and that has external elements. And, and those external elements have to do with what they eat, what they wear, uh, their customs of work and rest. Okay, they, they have rules and, and laws about everything in life. In fact, this, this passage that we're in serves as a bridge into the last section of Leviticus, beginning at chapter 11, where all those rules about, where all those rules about cleanliness and holiness are, are set out. So the priest's calling is to teach the people this. But remember, there's a spiritual lesson behind these. Okay, over and over in chapters 11 and following, we're, we're going we're gonna to read the expression that the Lord has separated these people from other people. And you remember the, the essence of the word holy means to set apart. So Leviticus is really all about how God is setting apart a people for himself. And he's giving them and us object lessons, as it were, to show us that. So, so he's, he's giving this whole sacrificial system that says he sets apart these people by sacrifices of purification and dedication that they make. And then chapter 11 and, and following, he set apart these people by by the way they live from day to day, by the food they eat, by the way they dress, by, by their calendar even. And in that way, 
we're being taught the spiritual lesson that God is calling us to holiness, calling us to godliness. And that's the second thing I want you to see in this passage. I want you to see the grace of God here, and I want you to see the call to godliness. J.I. Packer says that, that God and godliness are the two themes that unite all of Scripture. God has extended grace to these people, rescuing them out of slavery, and then he expects them to live in keeping the grace of Jesus. He has separated them by his salvation, by, by his saving work, and he wants them to separate themselves. They, he wants them to live out that separation through the lifestyle that they, they have. Well, the same thing applies spiritually, doesn't it? He's really teaching them by these earthly rules that have now been set aside in the new covenant in Christ. He's teaching them by those rules a spiritual truth. I want you to have an inner holiness that this outward purification symbolizes. See the significance of that? And so earthly symbolic separation is a picture of the inner setting apart that is, that is godliness. When God gives you the gift of faith, then that faith is to be expressed in godly living. The two go hand in hand. You can't, you can't separate them. And, and it's also the teaching of Scripture that, that as God's grace works in your heart, he gives you a desire for godliness. Okay, in and of yourself, you have no, no, no inborn taste for godliness. Okay, you, your taste as a sinner is for rebellion instead. But when God does a work of grace in your heart, he begins to give you an appetite for godliness. And that is, that is really a desire for God himself. You begin to realize that your longings, your desires, your joys are really ultimately fulfilled in God. And so we could almost say that that there's a motivation of love that is implanted in your heart. God has loved you in Jesus Christ. Open your eyes to the grace that he has extended to you in Jesus, and your response then is to love him and to desire to please him and enjoy his presence. That's really behind Jesus' call to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We often read that in, in terms of the self-denial part, but, but notice the first phrase. If anyone would come after me. If anyone wants to be with me. That's what he's saying. If anyone, if anyone senses my love for them and loves me and wants to come after me. Okay, your love for God is expressed in your self-denial. It's not a self-denial so that you can somehow earn God's favor. Okay, you deny yourself in response to the love that God has already shown. 
Do you catch the difference there? Because it makes all the difference in the world. The Pharisees' definition of religion is that their self-denial earns them favor with God. And Jesus, Jesus rejects that. Okay, the, the self-denial of a true believer is based upon their love for God that is there because God has loved them. This is what Paul's talking about, I think, in Galatians 2, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, you see that the motivation Paul has is the love that God has shown to him in Christ. And so he wants to be identified with Christ. He wants to be identified with Christ in his crucifixion, in his self-denial. And he sees that as, as a way to live in Christ and for Christ to live in him. Ultimately, of course, you know, that's going to be something Christ enables you to do, right? It's going to be the spirit who enables you to truly deny yourself. And, and, and God calls you to that even as he equips you to do it. Okay? He equips you to do that which he has called you to do. He doesn't just say, do it and leave it up to you. So as Christ lives in you, as you live by faith in what he has done because of his love for you, then you learn self-denial and living to Christ. Now, of course, there are other people involved in this text, right? The priests are to be teaching the congregation. And Moses will, in verses 12 and following, he, he will talk about the, uh, the importance of the priest to follow the sacrificial ritual. He gets upset because he thinks that uh, they have deviated from that slightly. Uh, the important thing to remember here is that, that their service takes place in the context of the congregation. And your living in godliness takes place in the context of your being a member of God's family. Okay, your, your relationship with Christ isn't just you and him. It involves the whole body of Christ. And, and so in a very real sense, as you depend on God's grace, as you grow in godliness, you are guiding others just as the priests were guiding the congregation. Now, it may not be in an overt position of leadership. But every member of the body of Christ has a ministry. And especially as you grow older in the faith, you are being a guide to others. Even if you're not teaching them verbally, you're guiding them by your example. Right? Adab and Abayu gave a negative example. Eliezer and Ithamar and Aaron seem to give a positive example. Notice how this passage ends with, with Aaron being concerned about doing that which is approved by God, that which is good in the eyes of God. And Moses affirms that as well. So 
So God's work of grace in you that causes you to grow in godliness produces a godliness in you that is a guide to others as well. Now, it may be that 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 guiding takes place just as an example, as I said, or it may be that that God's given you a position of some influence in in somebody's life. And every, every believer who's a parent, who's a grandparent, who's a friend to those who are younger, that there's a ministry that happens in the ter- within that relationship, or at least it hopefully should be happening in terms of that relationship as, as, as one is building up another. And the more that you've been blessed by God, the more is expected of you. Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they would demand the more. The giving of responsibility is to be responded to with obedience that then leads to greater responsibility, all toward the end of building up the body of Christ. And again, it all comes back to grace, doesn't it? Because we depend upon God's grace even as we seek to guide others. But we realize we're not perfect guides ourselves. We will fail. We will fall short. We will sin. So, So even in our ministry to others in the body of Christ, seeking to encourage them, build them up, teach them as we might have opportunity to by example or word, Even in those things, we're continually relying upon the grace of God. We're saying to ourselves, in effect, God, you're saying to God, I should say, in your grace, use what little I do to help build up your body, to help guide others into the grace that I've enjoyed. And... And maybe it would be a good thing to end with a, with a motivation for that. And I think the motivation, the best motivation, is going to be gratitude. Gratitude. In a sense, your motivation to deny yourself is ultimately out of gratitude for Christ denying himself for you. You see that? As you are grateful for what God has done for you, as you receive his grace, that fuels your desire for godliness. Because your desire to please him, to to honor him, is like you're saying thank you to him. And so in a very real way, living the Christian life is about living in gratitude. And when Paul talks about the way of the world, the way of condemnation in Romans 1, he starts with, they didn't give thanks. And so in a sense, the Christian life begins with gratitude. We're to be characterized by thankfulness for what God has done for us and the desire to express that thankfulness in godly living.
Let's pray and ask God to help us do that this week. Heavenly Father, surely we have every reason to give you thanks every day. And, and we, above all people, should be most grateful. So we ask, Lord, that you would, would help us to do that this week. May we choose thanksgiving instead of complaining and gratitude instead of grumbling and and as we do so, Lord, I, I'm sure that you'll give us opportunities to express that gratitude in loving you and in loving others and in seeking to deny ourselves for the sake of, of your kingdom. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.